uh, of the year. And so we had planned a croquet derby. Okay, this is going to be fun, but we, again, called an audible. So it was planned for Saturday. Talking to families, it's probably not a great day. The region, anyway, we're going to shift it to our house and make it a front yard party. We're going to have about three different croquet courses into my neighbor's yard. I've already approved it. I've already asked. He knows it's coming. Um, there's a playscape. We're thinking about some version of an inflatable so it becomes a little more kid-friendly because we want to make this a serious competition. As it's really fun to be super fierce about competition when no one's good at it. And so we're coming with our game face. Now, attire matters. It's a fun chance to wear a big hat. Imagine if you were going to a Kentucky Derby party without the heels. If you are a dude, just come with a sport coat, maybe a tie, shorts, and again, bare feet. Uh, and uh, if you have a fun lid, prizes are at stake here. Good prizes are to be awarded. We're going to do it on Sunday from about 2 to 5. So we already have that kind of window of Sunday afternoons together. So come on over to our house. We're thinking of some kind of shared food arrangement where it's either going to be a food truck or maybe we'll just order and everyone just kind of kick in for it. Uh, that piece is still coming together. But um, the other piece is we wanted to make it sort of a BYOB event. And trying to drink in parks uh, and make it legit uh, is, is problematic. Uh, so we're doing it at my house, which is sanctified and good. Uh, <laughs> so uh, come. It'll be fun. My neighbors will be there. But uh, we, we want to have a croquet derby in our front yard uh, yards. Uh, th this next Sunday. So if you have a friend that you want to join with you, our desire would be you would recruit your own playing partner that you're not like in bed with or, or you know, or because I, I know the trip home can be very argumentative if you have to be partners in anything. So we want to keep marriages protected and so bring and recruit your partner to come play with you. It'll, it'll be a fun day. Uh, and then um, uh, we have a ladies' retreat coming up the first weekend of April, and so the registrations are online. It's $120. It's Friday evening. This will be a great spiritually renewing weekend. Uh, our, my friend Irene Fambro, who came and spoke here uh, a couple months ago, uh, will be meeting us at the nice log cabin up at back at um, Log Country Cove, and so we'll be... Um, if, if you could just kind of get on that, get your invites out, and let us know. We're, we're making plans. Lastly... Uh, we had another birth. If you, uh, uh, Grace and Jonathan Tan, our dear, dear friends, gave birth to number four, boy. Uh, she is a boy uh, mom, if there ever was one. Um, she was very out of it yesterday afternoon when I showed up. Um, uh, and I wish you could see, that hat could barely stay on. That was the biggest head of lettuce you did. I had never seen a hairier kid than that, that, than that little Burmese child. Um, I mean, it was thick. Like, you could just go instant product and faux hawk it, like, from, from the womb. Uh, and um, she was so out of it, but uh, it was about, uh, it was d delayed. She didn't understand that when you're past your due date, the baby actually gains weight, and so it was over 10 pounds. Um, I'm saying the baby because they still have yet to name them. They had nine months, but there's no name yet. Uh, and um, she went, round four, she went with the C-section, and so um, I don't think she'd been hit like this. I mean, being in a Malaysian hospital and then being in an American hospital is a difference. Having, like, a C-section, she's like, I'm not moving very fast. So, uh, and, and anyway, 
it was, it was a really special time with her. Um, completely healthy uh, mom and baby are doing wonderful. So I was very excited about that and wanted to share that with you because I know some of you have some special relationships with them. Okay, so if we want to send the youth out, uh, thanks Wesley for grabbing. The Lord bless you as you continue in your time of worship. No trash talking. Come on. All right. Very cool. Very cool. Head that way. Well, I'm aware that when we get here, and again, when you meet in the evening, uh, you kind of have a whole day to get through, but I'm aware that most people show up and you've got your mind running. There's other things that are going through your mind when you show up to church. You try and shift gears, maybe even downshift into worship to experience something that, with anticipation and hope that God might have some word for you. But I'm aware that when we show up, there's things that are pressing on us. There's things that we haven't maybe shook from the last week. There's things that might have come up today. There's things that you're thinking about next week. And there's this kind of stress. There's a kind of worry that is the most natural thing in the world. But we, we sit here, we arrive here, and there's this feeling of, am I prepared for this? We all have things, maybe tomorrow, maybe this week, that we feel like, I don't feel ready for this. I, you might even be losing sleep over it supernatural, always part of the human equation, which is why it makes it sometimes hard when I'm reminded of this verse out of Matthew 6, 33. You've probably heard this verse, but the address points us to this verse that says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Um, that sounds really good. That sounds really ideal. That sounds really hopeful, but the problem is, is it doesn't make us immune from struggle, from loss, from disappointment. I can seek first God's kingdom in my relationships and my friendships, but it doesn't make things always peaceful. I can seek God first with sort of how I do business or, or, or how, you do, how you broker relationships and broker deals, but it doesn't always make it equitable. There's things that we tend to get stressed and, and don't feel quite prepared for. And so when I read this verse, I think, yes, I want to seek first the kingdom of God, but it doesn't matter how prepared we are. It doesn't make us immune from loss and struggle and hardship, right? You can be super obedient, you can be super faithful, you can be super like whatever uh, and feel like you make all the right decisions for all the right reasons in light of who you are in Christ, but it doesn't always work out that way. But when we, over time, can be familiar with the voice of the good shepherd, when we, over time, can learn how to discern the prompting of the Holy Spirit and yield, maybe turn to that, when we can actually find growing fellowship with God, the, word, the truth of God's word in our lives, what I think we learn over time is that regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the situation, God is preparing our hearts. God is giving us a vision, regardless of the situation, to see that he is actually in all things and for us. Now I can start to 
Seek first the kingdom of God and know that God's going to trust, even if I'm losing sleep, even if I'm at odds. The word of God has a way of preparing our hearts and, and, and it doesn't make us immune from going through the struggle and the loss. It doesn't make us immune from facing trials and, and, and temptation. But what it does is it kind of roots us so that we can stand with the Lord regardless of our situation. So this, over the next few weeks, I'm introducing a series uh, that I wanna explore the complete humanity of Christ. And there has historically been, particularly if you grew up in more um, like a Catholic tradition or maybe an Episcopal tradition, what's called the stations of the cross. Some people would say, oh, there's seven stations. But if you research it, there's like 14 stations of the cross and some are broken up by biblical occurrences and some are non-canonical and blah, 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 blah. I'm just mildly taking a few steps leading up to the cross. But one of the things I want to explore with this is the humanity of Christ. See, we end up often looking at Jesus, even though he was fully God and he was fully human. And we look at what Jesus went through and it's like, yeah, but at the end of the day, he's still God. Except that he was tempted just as we are. And he was broken just as we are. And yet he faced all of these struggles and, and so I think it's important for us to grow in our understanding that Christ's, Christ empathizes with you. Christ resonates with you on a very human level. And so I want to visit some of these stations of the cross as we work our way up to Easter. And one of those was at the Mount of Olives, or what is commonly known as the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Jesus has this moment where he would prepared uh, for his whole life for this final week where he enters in Jerusalem. He'd kind of done his 30 years of preparation. He went three years of public ministry and now he's really coming into like the goal line and, and uh, of what he's come to do. And I don't think there's any preparation for what the final week would be like for Jesus, but he prepared his whole life. And here's the thing it didn't make any of it any easier. I don't know if you could ever be ready for going on trial, being falsely accused. I don't know if you can fully be ready for your closest followers to abandon you. I don't, I don't think you can fully prepare for the kind of torture that he's going to go through, except that he was ready. It wasn't his first choice. It wasn't his favorite choice. But he was so committed to fulfilling God's will, his heavenly father's will, that he laid his own will at the side and said, I'm going to do this. Maybe that encourages you if you feel unprepared for this week. Because <laughs> I don't know what amount, I mean, it's sort of like, well, you know, preparing for a final. Like, you could actually prepare for it, or you could show up for it. Um, but there's always time that you feel like I could sure use another week, or I could sure use another day, I could sure use another hour. But here we have, it's hard to imagine that anything would prepare Jesus for this final week. In fact, he sweat, said he sweat like drops of blood. He sweat the weight of his own will and his own wants, his own desire and his own disappointments. And so what did he do in the midst of this? He prayed. He prayed. Come on. Prayer? Can I just say something to you? And I don't mean to be, make light of this, 
But I have to be honest with you. When I hear people say, oh, you should just give that to the Lord. Give it to God. Oh, you need to pray about that. Prayer often can, can feel like a pet, a dog that you've had your whole life, right? And it's sort of lost the, the, the youthfulness. It's sort of lost its bounce. And now all it does is like it lays around and it eats and it poops and then it barks, but it's got no bite left in it. It's that old dog that's become so familiar, you've grown so accustomed, but there's no adventure left in it. And you're uncomfortable with the presence, you're comfortable with the idea of that, but it's not something that we're leveraging or experiencing in a new way. Maybe it's a bad metaphor, but there is this contempt that comes with prayer that I think we miss. So for me to say, oh, I'm glad you came today, make sure you're praying, y'all, that feels sort of like, yeah, I know that. But our prayers, my prayers, often feel like they hit the ceiling. My prayers don't often register the kind of results that I want. But Jesus, in the most sort of, the most crucial hour, the most weighted moment that he's prepared his whole life for, and yet couldn't prepare enough for, he prayed. And I want to explore the nature of his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. The garden, the Mount of Olives, was about a 15-minute walk during the Passover. They left Jerusalem, and they got up the hill. When they arrived, it was probably about 10 or 11, which you'd think is kind of late, especially when there's not electricity, because it's like, oh, it's dark out. We should just go to bed. This would have been like sort of their New Year's Eve. No one really goes to bed before midnight. I mean, there is much to celebrate. There's much to discuss. Passover was this sacred Super Bowl experience of the religious calendar that no one was going to go to bed early, but you know the story. What do his disciples do? They're nodding off. Here Jesus' stress level is going. Here Jesus' is sort of like anticipation level is, is rising, and he's now feeling all of the weight of humanity on him, and his closest followers are keep it, can't even keep their eyes open. He's losing sleep. They're nodding off. Do you feel supported? Jesus goes to his heavenly father in prayer. Let's read this passage together. And it says um, in uh, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39. And I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to make a couple of points along the way. You might want to take notes. We're going to be taking, uh, I'm going to invite you to write a prayer in a little bit. But he says these are, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. So we see right away, this wasn't sort of a, an excursion. It wasn't like an unusual field trip. This was part of his fixed time prayer. This was something that he did. He would retreat with the guys. He would have this kind of experience, whether it was Passover or not, because last week we talked about Jesus was living a fasted life. Remember when he cast the demon out? He says, oh, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. Except the unique thing in that moment was that Jesus didn't have to wait 24 hours to go fast. He showed up and finding that sort of spiritual strength in a greater dependency on his heavenly father, he was able to cast out the demon when his disciples couldn't. So this was a thing he was doing as usual. So I wonder how fixed is our prayer life? How structured is our prayer life? How, um, how, how vibrant is our prayer life? This, this is what, it says that as usual, but there was a fervency about him. So, and he says, uh, and his disciples follow him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you'll not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and he knelt down and he prayed, 
Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples and he found them asleep. Bummer, right? I mean, he's not even hanging on the cross and he's feeling alone in this one. Guys, really? Come on, I asked. And uh, why, why are you sleeping? He asks. He says, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So let me just walk you through a couple of things. The first thing he says is pray that you will not fall into temptation. He leads with that and he kind of ends with that. So he envelopes this prayer meeting with pray so that you don't fall into temptation. Now the word temptation isn't what you might think. It actually translates testing. Super important distinction when you want to understand who God is. God does not tempt you. The devil tempts you. God tests us. Like a good educator, what kind of teacher would he be if you never had an exam? Do you know the material or not? Should you move on to fourth grade from third grade? It's the same principle. God wants to test us in certain circumstances or he allows for testing, for trials. Why? Because it's developmental and it's formative. It's going to test our obedience and our affection. It's going to test our very faith. And so the idea that you wouldn't fall in temptation is that you will be tested. So how are you preparing? Now, we can't seem to be prepared for every situation. There's life crisis that happens. There's deaths that occur. There's unexpected tragedies. And you're like, there's nothing on earth that can prepare me for parenting. There's nothing on earth that really, I can read a bunch of marriage books, but there's nothing that really compare me for saying I do. And yet, God walks with us through it all. And he's with us. So when we go through trials, testing, it's how is God present and comforting and guiding and speaking life. So in this moment, he's, he's here. And, and, and it's like how, how we know we'll be tested. So the question becomes, how do we prepare? It would be akin to going on a long road trip, but not filling up the gas tank. It seems about every year we make a trip to Colorado and I always visit the same Jiffy Lube and I change out some filters because it's the only time I think about it. But I know between here and Colorado is about 15 hours with a lot of nothing. And I just have this thought that like, I don't want to be stranded in the middle of nowhere where I probably likely could not even have cell phone reception. So I do what I can knowing that it's a mechanical vehicle and it's prone to break down but I try and prepare. It's the same idea. When we're invited to intimacy with God, what we're given is the potential to find strength in God regardless of the duration, regardless of the circumstance. So intimacy with God is how we prepare and prayer is the vehicle that we're able to generate that kind of dialogue. Um, and so then he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. <laughs> Have you ever begun a season of your life? Eyes wide open. Oh my God, this is going to be hard. And I hope it'll be good. 
oh my God, what did I just sign up for? For me, it was when I became a dad. I was like 30 minutes of delayed joy because I was like this overwhelming sense of responsibility that I just brought a young life that now I'm responsible for. And I was like, okay, no, this is going to be a good thing. And I, I was able to celebrate it, but eyes wide open. All of a sudden you realize, oh man, this is going to be a lot of hard and a lot of good. Do you have those moments? Jesus was having one of those moments. This is going to be really painful. This is going to be really hard. This is going to feel really lonely. Father, if there's any other way, may this, may you take this cup from me. That's a worthy prayer. Can I just talk to you about prayer? Because I want to expand our prayer lives. And in our tribes, I've written a couple of discussion guides in the next couple of weeks where you can have this conversation. But I want to introduce it this way. Sometimes prayer is asking God for things. And sometimes prayer is asking God about things. Both are necessary and super important. But let me tell you what I mean by that. If you start with a prayer life, you know that your Heavenly Father wants to give you good gifts. And, and as a parent in love with the child, he's not going to give us everything we want. But it's really good to know that God, the creator of the universe, my spiritual parent, wants to hear me call out to him. Really necessary that we would go to God with needs and even wants, desires of our heart. But sometimes prayer is simply asking God about things. So as a child, I went to my parents a lot. I asked them for rides to my friend's house and I asked them for a little bit of money to get candy. I asked them for sleepovers. I asked them for help with my homework. There was a lot of requests that I made of my parents because I saw them as people who were a resource and wanted to give me stuff and they seemed to be really generous about it. But as I grew up and grew into a more um, uh, kind of give and take relationship with them, I started to ask them about things. Why is it that some families are getting divorced? Why is it that some of my friends don't believe in God? Why is it that we believe this about who God is? And I start having this dialogue with my parents. It's the same thing with us in our own prayer lives. I hope that your prayer life begins to expand because intimacy with God is part of the dialogue that's supposed to occur. But if all you have is a one way, God, can you help this, fix this, bless this, do this, that would be great. Gotta go. <laughs> God, why is it? Can you help me understand? God, would you reveal things that are impure or in any unclean in, way in me? God, would you help me examine my own heart? There are introspective, contemplative prayers that God invites us to that allows for the ministry, the voice of the Holy Spirit. This is why I say, regardless of how well prepared we are for one particular instance, there is this internal spiritual fortitude that we can develop as we learn to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd saying, I am with you. You are mine. And then we start to yield to the prompts of the Holy Spirit. And then we have this growing fellowship with the truth of God's word. This is what fuels a really dynamic prayer life and, and asking God not just for things, but about things. 
It doesn't mean that you always hear right away, but I want to encourage you to develop that kind of, of dialogue with, with the presence of God. And so he says, yet, <laughs> if there's any way, take this cup, yet not my will, but yours be done. His prayer with the, is that the Father's will be done regardless of what the future held for him. I don't know if there's a harder prayer. Because I really like getting my way. <laughs> and when I pray, God, here's my will, here's my wants, here's my desires. But at the end of the day, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus was willing to take the cup, to, to bear the mantle, and he did. Not my will, but yours be done. I think that's a wonderful attitude as we approach God. That's a wonderful reminder. God, I want to seek your will and your righteousness. Help me see that. And so in this moment, he says, it's really hard to think, I think, in our world of obedience as an act of love. Think about that for a moment. We tend to follow leadership to the extent that they represent my interests, they represent my likes, and they agree, I agree with all the decisions that they're making. Otherwise, they lose my vote. Jesus shows us there's a different way to follow leadership. That God has set up this kind of tier of, of authority in our lives. And even though we don't agree with it, he calls us to honor the positions of authority in our life. Because I understand what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, follow him and he'll make your path straight. In other words, there are things that our human understanding and our human sight cannot see. There are decisions that are being made that I am not privy to. But I believe, uh, and, and this, this is where it gets a little tricky for me, is if I'm honest, I struggle with God's timing. I struggle with God's direction. I struggle with sort of God's ways. Um, but it, it, it puts it back on my, is, is my faith in God or is my faith sort of rooted in circumstances? So, what I'm inviting us to is what Jesus is modeling here is a level of obedience that says at the end of the prayer, at the end of the day, not my will, but yours be done. Yeah, I got my feelings hurt. Yeah, I would do it differently. Yeah, I would say it differently. Yeah, it wasn't my finest hour, but not my will, but yours. The, I think every Christian at some point is going to need to confront this truth because ultimately when we're called into deeper levels of commitment and obedience what it what it does is it reveals our trust and our affection for the one we've said yes to i think that's a powerful way to walk into intimacy with god there was um there was this uh, man in 18 he was born in 1805 i don't know how many of you are familiar with george Mueller. George Mueller was born into wealth in the kingdom of Prussia. And his dad 
set him and his two siblings up with crazy amounts of money to the point that they would never have to work a day in their life. He was this aristocratic leader who was not really had a, a strong, like he didn't have strong faith convictions, but it was sort of the, the socially acceptable thing to do because everyone believed in God. But he set up his trust fund kids so that they'd never have to work again. But young George grew up and he was a wild child because he took advantage of all his privilege. And he was like, woohoo. And, and it was sort of like the prodigal son without ever being the returning son. Like he was like willing to live on, on God's dime or dad's dime and, and go live largely. But his dad had an idea for his son to gain social acceptance in sort of the aristocratic, because he never had to work, he thought, well, you can't just live at home and just party all day. Why don't you become clergy for the state church, which was the Lutheran church in the early 1800s in Prussia, right? So he sends him off to England to go to seminary. Not really a devout follower. He knew of God, but he didn't know God personally. He had never said that there's, he never had this moment where he recognized, oh my gosh, I need spiritual healing in my life. Oh my gosh, I, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. He just went to seminary so that he could kind of create this pathway of social acceptance, where it was sort of a, a good standing in the society. But at seminary, he started reading God's word and God's word started speaking to him in powerful ways. The other thing that happened is he's looking all around England and because of the effects of war and the plague, there was so many adults that had died and what was left were tons and tons of orphan children. So out of scripture, the compassionate and gracious and loving heart of God, he starts calling this otherwise pagan, to care for others more than he fed his own flesh. George Mueller had this vision for not just uh, orphanages, but a series of orphanages that began to proliferate like a franchise of orphanages throughout the country. But here's the real kicker. He divested himself of his trust and all his wealth, and he had such a conviction that he said, I can't even ask any person alive to meet my needs. I'm gonna trust God and God alone and go after this. And so he just built orphanages and the greatest of them was in Bristol, which when he started building this series of compounds, this was like, like 1830s or so, he had 50 cents in his pockets. When the project was completed, $7 million and he never made an ask. All he kept doing was going to the Lord and saying, you know the need, you know what the needs are. And he kept asking the Lord to provide. He felt from the very beginning of his pastoral ministry that he wasn't going, he wasn't going to use his own means and he wasn't going to ask dad to pay for anything. And so he just kept praying. I want that kind of prayer life. I want that kind of faith. I want that kind of intimacy with Jesus. Do you know, and I have his biography and I read it years ago, but the stories still stick with me. There was, and, and this was like, um, he did this every single day. He would just go to the Lord with needs and there was no pantry. There was no stockpile. There was no sort of storage full of reserves. There was just faith and obedience. And, and 
And he would sometimes have the kids come down and sit down at the table and there was no food provision. Nothing had been prepared because there was nothing in the storehouse. But he began to pray. And his conviction was to spiritually raise these orphan children. He thought it would be a greater testimony of God's provision if they just went to the Lord and learned to see God as their provider than his wealthy dad benefactor. Are you kidding me? And those stories are wonderful because there would be like buggies and carts, delivery carts that would break down right at mealtime as all of the kids are asking God to help and bless this food and there's no food that's coming out, but some dairy truck breaks down on their delivery route and they come in, they're like, this stuff, these food, these eggs, this milk, it's going to spoil. We're not going to get there in time. Can we leave this here? Or the bakery truck that pulls over and is like, I'm not going to be able to make this round. And stuff just showing up because the kids are seated there. Come on. You can't make stuff like that up. But he just set out to say, not my will, but yours be done. And he had a conviction that if, and again, this went for 60 years which if you do the math, 365 times six, it's over 21,000 days. And his conviction was, if there was ever a meal that the kids went without, it was the beginning of the sign that God was leading them on to something else. The kids always went fed. Pantry was always empty, but God always provided. Jesus leading up. There was no way to prepare for this. And yet he comes and it says, pray, pray that you'll deal with the testings because they're coming. It's not if, it's when. So how can we kind of fuel our spiritual tanks? How can we fuel our sort of intimacy with the Father before we get there so that we're not working on a reserve we're not just letting the cup run dry. We're not letting the tank run out of gas. There is something that we can sort of fortify ourselves, and it starts with community. But man, it makes a huge difference when we are cultivating a kind of dialogue with the Lord. So I want to encourage you just to bow your heads with me, and I want to take an extended time of prayer. We don't often do this at Mission Hills, but I want to make this time a time where we go to the Lord in prayer. If you brought something to write with, I want to just encourage you to take out your outline and just have something but I want to first just give you something to pray through as you just meditate so just bow your heads with me and let's just make this kind of a time between you and the Lord I want to make this a time where we open up our hearts and maybe our minds to the prompting of the Holy Spirit that God might have a word for you God might have an invitation a nudge And the first question I would just simply ask is, have you ever experienced a time where you realized your need for spiritual healing? Have you ever thought, I need a savior? I've known God in a general sense, but I've never had an encounter where I've invited Christ into my life. There is a union, a divine union, that God wants to start this is the beginning of salvation. This is ground zero for a living faith. And if that's something that you've never had a chance to do, where you just invite Christ into covenant relationship, where you say, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, I do to the Lord Jesus Christ.
and receive that forgiveness of sins. That's super important if we're going to have any conversation about intimacy with God. And we're just going to give some extended time for you to just kind of settle in and For those of you who have kind of a, a working relationship with Christ, I want to ask you, how, how are you being tested to trust God by faith? Is there an area, when I say that, jumps out at you? Your attitude, your forgiveness, your patience, your finances the giving of your own time. Is there an area where God might be speaking to you to trust him more by faith? I just want you to name it. Don't argue with it. Don't wrestle with it. Name it. If you don't have something to write with, I'm just going to invite you to pull out your phone and maybe jot yourself a note, but I want to ask you a question and I want to have you write out a prayer. And the question I want to ask you is this, to what extent does your prayer life actually require faith? It's very easy to just pray prayers where we, where we, God help and bless and do and thanks. But I think faith has way more capacity to be a source of strength. So do you pray prayers that actually require God to do something in the supernatural? Not just can I have it easier or can I have it a little bit better or can you make things go my way? But I'm talking about people coming into knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. I'm talking about people you'd never imagine to become Christ followers. I'm talking about healing spiritually, emotionally, relationally, physically, prayers of faith. We're invited into that. We're given access to that. I want to embrace that and I want us to all do that. So this is what I want you to write. If you could write a prayer for Lent, is there an area of your life that needs pruning? Write a prayer that includes both surrender and concern, but requires faith. Is there something you need to give up? Is there something that you want God to show you? Is there something that you're holding on to? But Write a prayer that includes both surrender and concern, but requires a level of faith. I want Lent to be a time that we do sort of the tilling of the soil of our hearts. Because new life is, is available. So we're just gonna create a time just to think on that. We're not gonna just start singing right away. I just want to give you a little bit of time to reflect on that, write on that, 
pray about that, but let the Holy Spirit speak. Soon and very soon my King is coming robed in righteousness and crowned with love when I see him I shall be made like him soon and very soon soon and very soon I'll be going to the place he has prepared for me. There my sin erased, my shame forgotten, soon and very soon. I will be with the
God, I'm aware that uh, your Holy Spirit is trying to bring communion with us. And I pray that for all the things that we're thinking about coming in here, that you would interrupt us in a really special way. And you would invite us into your holy presence. I pray that in our coming and our going, that you would make your will known to us and we could, we could in alignment with you say, not, not my will, not my wants, but your will and your way to your rule, to your reign. Lord, and I pray that you would help us to take just a measure of faith and, and parlay that into a, a growing muscle where we would see people of peace, friends and neighbors come to saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. I pray that we would come into uh, greater levels of obedience, uh, that there would be a greater capacity for love. I pray for an outpouring of your uh, Holy Spirit, that, that we would have a, a greater even boldness in our witness and so, Lord, we lay our lives before you, asking for you to guide, guard, and direct our paths. Pray that these prayers would take up kind of roots in our hearts as we work our way through Lent and prepare for new life. Lord, I want to bloom. I want to blossom. And I know that to experience that requires some pruning. So, again, have your will and have your way. We pray this in Jesus' name. I'm going to invite you to stand with us as we sing this time, uh, sing the song of worship together, and we'll make this our closing number. This is such a special time. I, I just, uh, I'm so looking forward to, by faith, what God wants to do in us and through us as we go into this Lent season and the new normal and being able to be a blessing to others and to instill a living faith in our kids. So uh, let's just give it away and keep praying these prayers as we go through Lent. Mm -hmm.